About four or five years ago, I went out uh, for drinks with a friend up the street here at uh, Death Valley's little brother, further up on King, great little spot, espresso, you know, this little espresso and whiskey, uh, craft whiskey bar, and, and we were talking about this film that came out at the time, called, and it's based on the Broadway production of, of uh, Les Miserables. And it was the rendition that Hugh Jackman and friends had, uh, uh, Russell Crowe and others had, had done. And if you haven't seen the Broadway production of Les Mis, it is powerful. If you haven't seen that, um, that particular uh, uh, theatrical rendi- uh, depiction on film that uh, Hugh Jackman starred in, it is a powerful picture of law and grace at work. It is a, it is a, a brilliant story and a brilliant allegory of, of uh, the power of, of grace and and the unrelenting pursuit of the law. This is this great picture. And so we were sitting down and we were talking about it. And I said, hey, you know what? We, we had seen it. Have you seen it? And he said, yeah, I've seen it, you know. And he wasn't really about it. And he's like, you know, kind of, he's like, I just, I kept getting distracted. And I'm like, distracted? What do you mean? Now there was, granted, there are some things to get distracted by. Okay, Russell Crowe's uh, quote-unquote singing is perhaps not Oscar. Where, you know, if, you, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, right? I am driven. This kind of a thing. So, okay, granted, that could be a little distracting. But beyond that, what he was saying was distracting was, he said, I can't believe all he did was he stole a loaf of bread. You know, the story is that Jean Valjean, he, he steals this loaf of bread to feed his family because he's poor during the, French, uh, during the time of the French Revolution. And the law puts him in prison. And he lives this horrific life in prison. And he comes out of prison. And the law continually pursues him and says, you broke the law, you're always a lawbreaker, and I'm going to unrelentingly pursue you because once a, once, a, uh, uh, w- once a lawbreaker, always a lawbreaker. And so my friend was saying, I, ju- I just kept getting distracted through the film. I'm thinking, all it was just a loaf of bread. Let the, g- give the guy a break. It's just a loaf of bread. And I was coming over the table. And the reason I was coming over the table was because it had literally been months, I think, since my heart had really been electrified by God's great grace and justification by faith alone. And I was crawling over the table saying, that's the point. I mean, of course it was just a loaf of bread, but that's the job of the law, don't you see? And I was going crazy and I'm getting all animated. I'm spitting all over the table. And he said, yeah, but it was just a loaf of bread. I'm saying, yes, but we, all of us are Jean Valjean. All of us have stolen the loaf of bread. I'm going crazy like this over the table. He tells me later, he drives home. He's like, wow. He's like, Paul was pretty wound up about Les Mis. Woo! Goes home and he says to his wife, he's like, something is up with Paul. I mean, this guy is like, what has happened? And, and uh, the job of the law, was, are, as we're going to look at this even more closely this morning in Galatians chapter 4, the job of the law is to accuse us. And the job of God's gospel and God's grace is to exonerate us. And so today's text is in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 8 to 20. But coming up to this point, leading up to this point in the letter, the, the, the point is, Paul is saying, all of us have stolen the loaf of bread, all of us are guilty, but yet Christ in his great grace has absolved our guilt. And of course, in Les Mis, if you've seen the production, what happens is, the thief, the one who's guilty, the one who is the lawbreaker, finds refuge in a priest's home. And the priest gives him this undeserved, incredible love and grace. He feeds him, he clothes him, and he gives him a bed. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he's tormented by this undeserved grace that he's received. And he snaps and he has a relapse and he starts stealing all the silverware in the priest's home. 
and he leaves in the middle of the night and he's tormented and he's crying because he's been shown this great grace and yet the, and now in the middle of this grace he has sinned and he has stolen from the one who gave him the grace and he runs and he gets caught by the law and the law drags him back and beats him into the ground on the priest's stoop and knocks on the door and the priest comes to the door and there he is bloodied and battered with a bag full of everything that he stole he's just drowning in his sin in the middle of this grace that had been shown by the priest and the priest turns around and goes in and grabs two silver candlesticks and brings them out and he says you forgot these these are yours too and he says to the law to the, to the lawman standing on the on the porch he says you can go everything that he ha- everything that he has i've given to him and and the law officials, of course, are stunned by this, and they leave, and he gives them the candlesticks, and he lets them keep everything, and he sends them on his way. And that was, that radical showing of grace kept Jean Valjean up at night, and he ended up living a life of radical reform that flowed from a heart that exploded in the disbelief of the grace that he'd been shown. This is the flow of the undeserved grace of God and, and the law and, and the job of the law and how the power of the gospel comes and, and causes us desire to lift God's glory. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is pointing this picture to the... He's battling this idea in Galatia that you're supposed to obey in order to gain your acceptance from God. Whereas what Paul is saying is no, the true gospel is substitution, not contribution. And as we come to this point in the letter... Something interesting happens. The church is now relating to Paul like an enemy. And so what Paul does is he says, my message never changed, but your way of relating to me changed. Why? And then what Paul does in this text that we're about to read is he says, there's two different ministries and there's two different responses to the law and to the gospel. And there is only freedom in the gospel. And there's only burden and continuing to live in salvation by the law. We pick it up here, chapter 4. In verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and through my condition was a trial to you, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, but you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Now, this, this little warning by Paul in the church here, it sounds a little bit like he's saying, don't go back to pagan worship, but the context is not pagan worship. Well, over the last number of weeks, we've been seeing the context is legalism. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. As we unpack this portion of the sermon, it's this. Legalism 
produces insecurity because your acceptance before God is based on your work, your obedience, and your life. But the gospel offers liberty that produces maturity because before God, your acceptance is based on Christ's obedience, Christ's work, Christ's life. That's what Paul is getting at here. So we're going to look at two things through this text. And kids, if you look down at your notes, there you'll see, um, these are the two things we want to see that Paul is contrasting here. The first thing is, we're gonna, the first question we're going to ask this text is, how does legalism produce insecurity? Because that's what we're really dealing with uh, as we unpack this. And the second thing is, how does the gospel offer liberty and produce maturity? So here's the, let's go into the first part. How does legalism produce insecurity? The false teachers weren't encouraging the church to abandon God's law. They were actually encouraging the church uh, to believe that their salvation was by keeping God's law. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul does some wordplay. And I want to show you this wordplay that Paul is doing here. First, he starts out, uh, well, I'll explain it this way. He's saying that before they trusted in Christ, they trusted in Greek gods. And so by returning to the law and trusting in legalism, they're just leaving one dead end for another. Your first dead end was you were believing in gods that weren't gods, and now you're believing that your rule-keeping is saving you, and they're both dead ends. Neither are the gospel. And so here's his wordplay. Look, look at how he does this. He uses the word weak, worthless, elementary principles to refer to the gods of the earth and fodder, uh, sorry, earth and fire and water and air, the elementary principles of the world, the Greek gods that were based on those elementary principles. So he, first he, he mentions those. And then he says, you stopped with that, and now what you're trusting in, and look at the words Paul uses, days, months, seasons, years. What is that? That's the ceremonial worship calendar under the Mosaic Law. So Paul is saying, you left this, and now you're trusting in that, and neither of them are going to save you. In the, in the, in the uh, pagan worship, it's called votive offerings. If you were sick, you gave money to the gods of health and fertility. If you were poor, you gave money to the gods of the earth and so that your crops would produce. They still do this in countries today. It's called votive pagan worship. You, you know, you're barren, you go and you give money to the gods of fertility. That's called votive pagan worship. And so they were trusting in all these things. And Paul's saying, now you've abandoned all that. And now you're trusting in your good behavior to do the same thing. Is this relevant for today? Of course it is. Because North American, North, North American uh, uh, church is plagued with the idea that if there's something wrong in your life or if you're suffering in some way, the way to eradicate that suffering is to be more diligent in your spiritual disciplines. To, well, you know, maybe the reason you're sick or the reason this is happening, the reason that happening is, you know, you've, you're not, you don't have enough piety in your life. You're not behaving well enough. Maybe if you gave money to the God of health, you know, he would, do you understand? That's still prevalent today, very prevalent today in Christianity. That's dead wrong. It's all dead wrong. And what does Paul, what does Paul call all those things? He says that those things are worthless and weak. And so then they're trusting now in keeping their law. So what Paul is saying in verses 9 and 10 is, you can trust in Aphrodite or you can trust in your own piety. Neither are going to save you. So look down at your, at your notes, kid, when, kids, where it, uh, Paul says that he's fearing for them. Right? He's making a parallel. Paganism and legalism are both dead ends. That's the parallel. But look down at your notes, kids. It, it, Paul fears for them because what the legalism does is it erases assurance and it creates anxiety. 
Okay, if anxiety, kids, it's, it's, I mean, it's complex and complicated, but you just need to know it means your heart isn't at rest. Your heart is racing and worried. Okay? So that's what Paul is saying, is you can't trust in your own behavior, or you're always going to be insecure. You're always going to be worried. And that's not what's saving you. And so that's what Paul uh, goes on to say. Because in that system, how much obedience is really enough? How much prayer is enough? How much spiritual disciplines are enough? I mean, how do you really answer that? How many of you kids have other siblings, and there's an older sibling and a younger sibling? I talked about this last week with your parents. Your parents might say that the oldest one is more mature than the youngest one, but your parents wouldn't say the oldest one is better than the youngest one. They're not going to say, I love the older one better than the younger one because the older one is more obedient than the younger one. That's not, those aren't the categories. The categories are about maturity. And so what, what, the, what the legalism had done, what, it, what this idea of salvation by rule-keeping had done, is it had created a conversation about better in the ancient church. And it can create a conversation about better in today's church. And what that produces is insecurity and comparison. And, but ultimately, it's taking our eyes off of Christ and onto our work, which, of course, is the code red problem that Paul was, Paul was dealing with. And so, kids, look down at your notes again. What Paul is wanting us to see, this is the flow of the whole letter of, the Gal- of Galatians, is that our obedience to God is from praise and not for payment. And I stole that from a theologian named Susan Dunk, who gave that to me this week. It's that it's for, from praise. That's why we live the life we want to live. It's not for payment. And that's really critical. So that's how legalism produces insecurity. Because if you're unsure... Uh, that you're accepted by God. And if you think that what's making you acceptable by God is your spiritual achievements, then you're going to be radically insecure. And that insecurity is going to manifest like pride and defensiveness and an inability to confess your sin to your spouse, your children, your, your co-workers. Your, you're, you're going to have a fundamental inability to say, please forgive me, I was wrong, I sinned against you. Because your identity is not resting in Christ, your identity is now formed in being a good, righteous person. And, con- and confessing you're a sinner is a direct threat to your identity in being a good and righteous person. But you see, there's great rest when you know that in Christ you are a good and righteous person because he is the good and righteous person. And his righteousness is, ne- is clothing us. So now, if it's his righteousness and my identity is that I'm a child of God, we can now go to our spouses and our children and whoever and say, I was dead wrong. Will you please forgive me? I've sinned against you. But if we have a theology that says the righteousness isn't, isn't Christ's, and I'm clothed in it, but rather the righteousness is mine, to use a term from the 1500s, the Catholic term, it's been infused into me. Righteousness is infused. That's just not true. It's not infused. It's imputed, which means it's Christ's, and I'm clothed in him. So now I'm resting in him. I can confess my sin. Righteous in Christ, sinful in substance. But if that's not true, what, what the early church was, the problem in Galatia is, no, 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 through your work, you're righteous. So then when your spouse comes to you or your children come to you or there's something that, or somebody comes and confronts you about your sin, that's a direct threat to your own righteousness. So now our inability to confess it is not good. And so this is how it creates this radical insecurity. It's a huge threat to our identity because I'm not saying my identity is I'm a child of God. I'm saying my identity is I'm a good person. And so instead of saying, oh, God, forgive me a sinner, I'm just going to say, hey, relax, nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> right? Well, the un- whole entire unsaved world knows that nobody's perfect. So saying nobody's perfect doesn't draw us to confession. 
What draws us to confession is to say, oh God, forgive me a sinner. Help me to love my wife, my children, this person in this way I've sinned. So that's how legalism produces insecurity. But now let's move on. How does the gospel offer liberty and produce maturity? Well, in verse 9, Paul makes this great statement. He says, but now that you've come to God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to these elementary principles? I want to draw your attention to when Paul says, or rather. In the Greek, whenever they use this word, or rather, malon in the Greek, it's, they're doing it to prioritize something. So he, Paul's making a, he's saying, you know what the priority is? The priority isn't that you know God. The priority is that God knows you. The priority here is that God truly knows you. The, the, word, it, it, the word means to be deeply and truly known. Gnostentes is the, is, the, is the word that Paul, he specifically uses it. Words matter. We don't just interchange words in the Bible. Well, you could say it this way, you could say it that way. Nope. The reason why Paul picks this word is because he's saying the big deal is that God knows you. And what that means is he knows you're more sinful than you think you are. That's how deeply he knows you. And knowing that, he loves you. You're more loved than you could imagine. That's the love with which God loves you. That produces a great security. See, if, if somebody doesn't really know you, and they say, I, oh, I love you. Oh, I love that guy. That's superficial. It's nice. It's a beautiful sentiment, but it's really superficial. If I don't really know you and I'm like, I love you, you're like, you don't even really know me. And in fact, if you did know me, you may not love me. So you see, it, to, be, to, to not be known and to be said that you're loved is superficial. But to be truly known and then not loved, that's devastating. Now I truly know you. Now I know how dark your heart really is. Now I know the things that you've done in your past and now I can't love you. That's devastating. So you've got superficialism and then you've got rejection. But then you've got the gospel, which is you are truly known, all your sin is worse than you think, and in that God knows you and loves you and in Christ receives you, his great grace. It's the depth of the gospel. That's true love. Right? That's, the, that's why the picture of Christ and his church is, is the image Paul gives for marriage. It's not, a, it's not, oh, I love you so much today, this is so amazing, you're the greatest, I'm the greatest, this is the greatest, this day is the greatest, wowsy, wowsy. It's promise of future love. Forever, when I, when I learned the worst version of you and I learned that, oh my goodness, it's worse than I thought that it was when I was dating you and now I'm still committed to you and I still love you, the cross says, I forgive you, I love you, I still forgive you, I still love you. It's a promise of future covenant love. That's the love that God loves the church with. That's how he loves you. That's, that's what Paul draws them to in Galatians. He goes, you're going to leave that? I mean, you're going to leave that kind of love for, a, for, for this weak worthless, if you're good enough, I'll love you stuff? If you obey me enough, then I'll love you? If you read your Bible enough, if you pray enough, if you do enough devotions around the table with your children, do you understand? You're going you're gonna to go to that now? You see, it's sitting in the radicality of God's grace that drives our mature... It's, it's, that, it's that liberty that drives and propels the maturity. It's sitting in the gravity of that liberty that makes us say, i got to teach this to my children. My children, got, they 
in the same way that I got to teach them the ABCs and grammar so they, they can understand how the, to communicate in the world. I got to teach them this gospel. And all of a sudden, you're not sitting around your dinner table afraid that if you don't do it, God, somehow you're a bad Christian. Do you understand? It's that your soul is shriveling if you don't. It's not you don't come to prayer like, well, if I don't pray this week, then somehow I'm a bad Christian. It's the liberty that propels your maturity. To be like, I've got to come to my Father in prayer. How could I not pray? It's not about guilt. It's not about earning. It's not about being better. It's about breathing in oxygen. And Paul says, you're going to leave the depth of that love? And you're going to go back to this? It's crazy. So he prioritized it. Kids, if you look down at your notes, this is what Paul is trying to say when he uses that phrase in the Greek. He's saying, you don't make yourself lovable. You see that? You don't make yourself lovable. The Father loves you. And in loving you, he's, he's made you all the lovable you need to be. That's, that's the beauty of what Christ has done. And so the gospel produces this. Then Paul uses this interesting phrase. He, then he goes on to say, I became like you, and I want you to become like me. What is that all about? Again, it's liberty and maturity on display. Let's look at this. Let's unpack it. He says, I became like you. In other words... I was flexible in everything except for the gospel. I was culturally flexible. My diet was flexible. The the things I was doing was flexible. I became like you. And what was the message of the religious leaders at the time? This is Paul's argument. Become like us. Dress like us. Eat like us. You see this? You have to read the whole letter to appreciate why Paul says, I became like you. What were the religious leaders doing? Not becoming like them. The religious leaders were saying, these are the approved movies for your family. These are the approved books for your family. It can go on all day. The religious leaders were like, you become like us. You eat this, you go there, you do that. You did, that's what they were up to. Go back to the Mosaic Law. Paul, Paul said, I'm flexible in everything except for the hill I'm dying on is labeled Christ alone. And as a result of that hill being labeled Christ alone, the ethic of my life is now going to align to live to the lordship of Christ who is not only my Savior, but my Lord. So if I'm mesmerized by the liberty of his grace, I'm not going to live with indifference to that grace. I'm going to live to the glory of that grace, but it's being propelled by the liberty. So Paul says, I became like you in everything. You want to eat that? You want to have a, you want to have a bacon sandwich and talk about it? No problem. Paul's like, you got it. Religious leaders are like, whoa, no, this is the things we eat. Paul's like, you want to go to the party and have a conversation, you know, while there's dancing going on? No problem. The religious leaders are like, whoa, hold on a minute. We don't, you know, we don't, you know, I'm just making things up. But you understand, th- this is the point, is that there was this fundamental difference between Paul's way of relating for the sake of the gospel and the religious leaders creating a religious, uh, essentially it would have been a religious ghetto where everybody had to be homogenous in the way, in their culture, in their way of, of thinking and being. But then Paul says... Become like me. So what does that mean? If we just take the phrase, we wouldn't know what it means. But when we read the whole letter, here's what we see. Begins to unpack. Paul is not saying, look down at your notes, kids. Can I put, I put this in here for you? When Paul says become like me, he's not saying become as right as I am. Become as put together as I am. The flow of, the, the flow of his logic is this. He's saying become as dependent on Christ as I am and you'll be as free as I am. And you'll, in, and you'll enjoy God as I am. And you'll live to his glory as I am. He, it, Paul's saying become as I am. It's about dependency on Christ and freedom as a result of that. 
Because what the religious leaders are doing is where they're not depending on Christ. So when Paul says, be like me, he's saying, Take, get off all this worthless stuff and put your trust where the liberty is. The liberty that produces maturity. That's, the, that's, that's his argument. That's what he's, he's saying why, and uh, why he says it that. So the gospel you know, comes to the Galatians while Paul was suffering. He's sick. We just read it, right? He would, that wasn't his plan. Galatia wasn't his plan. Preaching the gospel wasn't his plan there. Planting a church wasn't his plan. And getting sick wasn't his plan. But God permitted it all. God edited the plan. And the good news for you and me is that not only can God edit our plans, but all of his edits are good. Even the horrible, horrifying things in our life, he's still working out. We don't know how. And it might, he might not even be working it out for us. Paul's sickness wasn't being worked out for Paul. Paul's sickness ended up planting the church in Galatia. And here you and I are 2,000 years later enjoying the freedom of life under the liberty of God's grace and not the law. And so all of this is happening. And so Paul is, what Paul is saying, become as I am, he's saying, do you see how free I am resting in Christ? The only reason the church is here is because I got sick, but my dependency is on Christ. I'm not being suffocated by legalism. I'm living to the glory of the one who saved me. And so when he says, be like me, it's an invitation into rest and renewal. It's an invitation into liberty and maturity, knowing I'm God's child. My life is in his grip. You, church, you are God's child. Your life is in his grip. When things are beautiful, praise him. When things catch on fire and burn to the ground, praise him. When you wake up in the morning and your body is healthy and you're feeling good, thank him for that. You, now you've got energy to go and do all kinds of beautiful things. When you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and like, I feel horrible, I feel terrible, I'm sick, I'm weak, you get to rest. That's not a commentary on your Christian citizenship, the, the state of your health. Whether you are healthy or not healthy, whether you have resource that is more than enough for your family and you can care for someone else's needs, or you're trying to make ends meet, neither is a commentary on God's love for you. Neither is a commentary on your spiritual maturity. So Paul is saying, become like me, rest in God. And you're not held hostage by circumstance. See, legalism produces insecurity because every time life isn't working out, what does the legalist go to? Okay, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to do more of? Which levers do I need to pull? Which buttons do I need to push so that this suffering can stop? The beauty of the gospel is not that God delivers us out of all of our suffering. That is not the new covenant promise. The, the new covenant promise is God is with us in our suffering. His grace is sufficient for us in our suffering. And in the end, he is eradicating all suffering, which gives us a completely different view when we are suffering. Great confidence, great rest not a commentary on how God is feeling about me or pleased with me or not pleased with me. Great rest. Paul says to them, be like me. The invitation, come be liberated, friends. So Paul is inviting, inviting them into. And so, interestingly though, as he's making this appeal, then in verse 14 to 15, he says, but now you're treating me like an enemy. He says, so what happened? What changed? My message of grace in Christ alone hasn't changed, but your way of relating to me has changed. How did that happen? Well, it happened because Paul's ministry was centered on the gospel. And the false teaching ministry was centered on works. And if your ministry is centered on the gospel, you don't need people to be dependent on you. But if your ministry is centered on works, you need people dependent on you. If your ministry is centered on the gospel, then then what's happening is you're preaching salvation by faith. So Christ validates you. But if you're preaching 
if your ministry is centered on works, then you need people to be dependent on you because their dependence on you is validating your work. It's like a vortex of insecurity. So the religious leaders are themselves insecure because their salvation is hinging on all their work. And so now they're turning the hearts of the church back to the Mosaic law, but ultimately to them, and I'm going to show you in a minute, it's like this sick codependent relationship um, that they created because they need people to depend on them. In verse 17, you get this phrase, they make much of you so that you make much of them. Don't let that line get lost. Man, that's code red critical. The difference between gospel of ministry and gospel of legalism. Do you see that phrase? They make much of you so that you make much of them. In the Greek, this whole make much, the word in the Greek is alute. It mean, it's an intense word. How many of you kids know what uh, onomatopoeia is or onomatopoetic? It means bang, pow, hiss, bang, you know, words that, words that are saying. Well, in the Greek language, the zalute is actually a word that means, bo- it's like if water was boiling, they would go zalute. So Paul uses this word that everybody gets a, a visual picture and he goes, they are pursuing you with this boiling hot, bubbling over flattery. So that in turn, you will give them boiling hot, bubbling over commitment. God, Paul is pointing people to Christ. The religious leaders are pointing people to themselves. Paul is calling people for allegiance to Christ. The religious leaders are calling people for allegiance to themselves. The entire, the, the entire phrase in the Greek, that, that, that's how you get it. It's, it's a thalusin hina autos zalute. And that whole phrase together is like this boiling hot, bubbling over flattery come this way. So that's why Paul says, hey, what happened? You're treating me like an enemy. It's because their hearts have now been turned to salvation by works. That's what happened. So the implications, of course, for you and me today are that they, they help us, not only us, but train our children to be able to rest in the truth of God's grace because teaching that's pointing to, to Christ is sound and teaching that is beckoning uh, for you to trust in yourself and to curve back inward or to to uh, trust in a leader for salvation is false. Or an allegiance for salvation is false. So the reason they're treating him like an enemy is because the false teachers treated Paul like an enemy. And they're like, oh, okay, we see how this works. So I guess we'll treat him like an enemy too. So the allegiance shifted from Christ who kept the law and then their allegiance was to the false teachers insisting that they needed to keep the law. So that's why we see there's there's this maturity here. Because in verse 20, Paul says, I'd like to change my tone. But he doesn't change his tone. Because he's more interested in holding up the gospel than holding out for their approval. Which I think gives us a great picture of how grace frees us, right? And Lord help me, because I'm really out of my depth now as I talk about this, because this is one of my, my chronic sins is, that I struggle with, is can I hold up the gospel or am I going to hold out for approval? And what we see in Paul is he loves the church. He planted the church. He loves them. And so that's why he's like, even if it makes you angry, even if you hate me, I'm going to hold up the gospel. I'm not going to hold up for your approval. And that's why he uses this metaphor of a, of a, of a mother in childbirth. Right? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I can't speak with any sort of authority here, so, but I, I, I welcome all the ladies to correct me after the service when I make this statement. And here's the statement. I'm confident no woman even in the suffering of childbirth, has ever said, leave it in! I'm pretty sure that every woman 
going through an intensity like none of us men will ever understand or dare conceive to understand, right? Uh, apologies for men who, you know, break their arms or something and say, this is as bad as childbirth. So just forgive us for foolishness, ladies. But no woman has ever, in the midst of that pain, said, leave it in! Why does Paul give this, this picture? Because like a woman, when you read the flow of the letter, Paul's whole thing with this labor uh, image, it's in verse 11 and in 19, like a woman in labor wants the child outside them, breathing in oxygen, having life apart from the mother, Paul wants the church outside him, breathing in the oxygen of God's grace, having life in Christ apart from the law. The false teachers want the church inside them, continually dependent on them, keeping the law to validate them. That's the, con- that's, that's the picture. That's the, that's the image. The gospel of grace produces dependence on Christ. The false gospel here in Galatia of works, it produces dependence on the leader. The gospel of grace produces likeness to Christ. What's happening in Galatia? It's producing likeness to the teacher. The gospel of grace produces a life being lived to the praise of Christ. The false teaching of works, it produces a life being lived for the praise of the teacher. And Paul says, what are you doing? That is not freedom. That's bondage to the law. That's bondage to a system of the law that you can't keep, that Christ already kept. And that's bondage to people who are flattering you, so you give them boiling hot allegiance. And that's a nightmare. And so this is the uh, picture that he gives. Kids, I'll, give it to, I'll, I'll explain to you this way as I prepare to close. How many of you kids can imagine this and, and think this seems normal to you? You're 35 years old. Fast forward to the future. You're 35 years old. You're out with your friends after work and you're like, oh man, you know, it's been a long day. And they say, hey, listen, good job on that project that we just finished. Why don't we go out for dinner and maybe catch a movie? And then you, you, your 35-year-old self says, that sounds fantastic. Hold on a second. Hey, Mom. Yeah, I'm just here with my friends, and I'm wondering if it would be okay if we went out for dinner and a movie. And your mother goes, well, that depends. Is your bed made? Uh, I don't remember. Well, did, is there dishes in your sink in your apartment? Uh, I don't know. That's the relationship the false teachers wanted with the church. And Paul's like, this is a weird, sick codependent with the law situation. Your parents want you not just, li- not just in liberty, leaving the house and doing ridiculous things and making a mess of your life. Your parents want you in liberty and maturity. And the gospel of God's grace gives you liberty that produces maturity. Legalism keeps you infant, an infant and keeps you in constant insecurity and sick codependency. So I'm going to close with this. I guess this is closing number two. Did I already say that? Is this closing two or three? I have three closings here. I'm just kidding. This is the... I'm just kidding. I'm going to land the plane. My kids are in the front like, I want dad. Come on. Okay. All right. I should just stick to the text. I don't know why. All right. Here's what we learn from from the grace in Paul's life, I think. Um, He loved the church so much he was willing to say things that could even make them angry, but he was willing to say them. And the gospel frees us from needing the approvals of, of others so that we can confront in love, even if, even if it angers the people that we love. And may God's grace give us the ability to do that. If we love people so selfishly that we can't risk their anger, um, 
We're not going to tell them the truth that they need to hear. But at the same time, if we do tell them the truth, and we tell it harshly and selfishly and, and self-righteously, they're not going to hear. So I'm, I have really good news for you. It's that the power of God and his word in you, together working, is now doing this beautiful work in you, church, through the preaching of Christ, the bread and the cup that we're about to receive together. This gospel is liberating you, and it is maturing you. By the Spirit of God, you're being renewed and reoriented to enjoy your liberty and to grow in spiritual maturity. Because your acceptance before God is not based on your obedience, but Christ's perfect obedience for you. His substitutionary and atoning death has removed all your sin from you. His divine resurrection is your assurance that not even death itself is going to hold you. And so may God give you uh, his grace to understand the magnitude of what has been given to you, and may you live in increasing freedom and liberty of the gospel that is constantly by his power working in you. Let's pray.